tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. It's November 30th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got four briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, the White House is making a new pitch to Congress for war aid to Ukraine. And here's the pitch. Foreign wars are good because we make the bombs. Details shortly. Second, Joe Biden blasted MAGA Republicans yesterday because he said they are opposing his green energy agenda. Just one problem, though. A new survey shows that Americans really don't want to be a part of that green agenda, especially with those electric vehicles. Third, the U.S. vice president is heading to Dubai this morning, where global leaders have three very important messages for you about climate change. I'll tell you what to expect. Fourth, an update out of the war in Israel. We've got more global hostages freed, more humanitarian aid delivered, and fresh analysis on why the White House is pressing Israel to end this war. Later, a personal reflection today on events out of the Netherlands, which, of course, we spoke about on Tuesday. I've got an important update for you with a lesson, I think, for us here in America. But first, let's get to our top stories of the morning. The White House is trying to rally Congress this morning to give Ukraine more than 60 additional billion dollars in new aid. Well, Mr. Biden has come up with a new pitch for those dollars, and here it is. Foreign wars are actually very good for America, even if we're losing them, because we make all the bombs and other war material. The media outlet Politico is reporting that that is the new pitch to include a new map, apparently showing how each state in our union benefits from the war in Ukraine. For instance, in Pennsylvania, that state has gotten $2.3 billion in economic increases to produce bombs, missiles and bullets for Kiev's war against Moscow. Arizona, meanwhile, comes in second place. They got $2.2 billion from creating mostly uh, missiles, amongst other things. Other big state winners include Texas, Arkansas, Florida. They have all gotten over $1 billion in war spending as well. Rounding out the list of big winners in the war machine include Wisconsin, California, Alabama. All of them bolstered by at least $900 million or more in war benefits. This new pitch or messaging, by the way, comes one month after the White House decided that it needed a a fresh approach all to convince what is now a very reluctant Congress and the American people about this war aid. Indeed, polls show that they want less aid to Ukraine, not more. I should note that whatever the pitch might be, it is quite a change for Mr. Biden and his Democrat Party. Consider when then-U.S. President Donald Trump put out his proposed budget that increased spending for both the Pentagon and, of course, defense contractors. Then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi slammed his budget and that move, saying that, quote, throwing billions of dollars at defense while ransacking America's investments in jobs, education, clean energy and life saving medical research. 
that will leave our nation weakened, end quote. Well, apparently that is no longer true. Instead, the White House and its party believes that, well, more bombs equal more jobs. So those are the latest facts and data out of Washington, D.C. this morning. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion. Just four years ago, Mr. Biden and then-Senator Kamala Harris were promising us that they would reduce Pentagon spending, demanding that the nation have what they called a small, predictable defense budget. They also called for an end to forever wars in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Finally, and this is interesting, they also demanded that, quote, they have a high-level commission to review the role of defense contractors and take greater action against those who have been involved in fraud, end quote. What a difference four years makes. Those defense contractors have not only avoided a high-level commission to deal with their fraud, but Mr. Biden says we actually need to give them more money which I must say is made all the more remarkable given this. About two weeks ago, the Pentagon failed its sixth audit in the past six years. Officials found that about half of the military's assets could not be accounted for, with the Pentagon failing 22 out of the 29 sub-audits. So there's that. Second, I think that Mr. Biden and those who support this war in Ukraine continue to miss the point. Americans increasingly disapprove of this funding because first, they know that we are losing, right? We all know this. And second, we don't have the money. It is all unsustainable debt that we are issuing to pay for it. Finally, there's an issue, frankly, of morality, right? We know from European diplomats, from the U.S. military and Ukraine's military leadership too, that they have all assessed that this war has stalled out and that Russia has strategic advantages that are difficult to impossible to overcome, including a bigger population with more men to fight. So a reasonable person could argue that it is unethical or immoral to continue to pump in war material when we know that it won't ultimately make a difference, especially when it leads to the destruction and the slaughter of another nation and its people. In other words, Who cares that it might create some jobs here at home? It's both illogical and immoral to boot. So I think it's something for us to consider. And that is true no matter where we live or how many billions of dollars that Pennsylvania or Arizona or Texas might get. With that, we turn to our second report of the morning. Joe Biden was in Colorado yesterday, stopping in the city of Pueblo on a campaign swing through that state. Once there, he blasted his opponents as MAGA Republicans, saying that they were in favor of tax breaks for the rich. Plus, they were opposed to his green energy agenda. In fact, he delivered those remarks at a facility that makes wind blades for wind farms. For the record, there was no mention yesterday of the 600,000 birds or so that are killed by those wind blades each year. But no matter, Mr. Biden made clear that for, well, the non-birds, these green energy systems are critical. He blasted Republicans for having the audacity to, quote, oppose investing in all of those green energy programs that help people, end quote. Well, unfortunately for Mr. Biden and uh, fans of what he calls green energy, they got some bad news yesterday from Americans who said, well, we don't want your help or your green energy agenda. And here's why. 
Consumer Reports released their annual survey yesterday of auto reliability, asking Americans for their thoughts on which cars and pickup trucks are the most reliable, the least reliable, and why. At the top of the list of most reliable vehicles were gas and diesel-powered cars. Next were the hybrid vehicles, or those with a mix of gas and battery-powered engines. In dead last, much like the birds under the wind blades, are electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids. Those things, say your fellow Americans, are real stinkers. In fact, car owners of electric vehicles had 79% more problems than gas-powered vehicles. Especially bad were electric pickup trucks and those hybrid plug-ins, which had 146% more problems than the good old-fashioned gas-powered cars. And that probably helps explain why companies like Ford and GM are now canceling or otherwise downsizing their plans to embrace EVs, especially those pickup trucks. And to that point, a separate report out yesterday from AutoList showed that 39% of Americans found these EV pickup trucks to be unappealing. And that is up from 33% last year. As for why all of this might be, why so many people think that these EVs are not necessarily the greatest cars around, well, the CEO of Consumer Reports said this, quote, What matters most to consumers remains the same as always, finding safe, reliable cars, end quote. And that apparently does not include electric vehicles. So those are the latest facts and data, folks, on what I prefer to call dirty green energy and Mr. Biden's commitment to that energy revolution. Let me now pivot briefly to my analysis and opinion. First, God bless capitalism. The market is speaking loud and clear, and you all think that these EVs are just trash. And car companies, to their credit, are now starting to listen. To the point, Detroit News reported yesterday that GM is now considering a, quote, dramatic move to reverse their commitment to EVs and instead build hybrid cars, too. Well, as it turns out, those are the ones that you want not the ones that Biden or his fellow leftists want you to want. So I think that that is just a great story because it's that wonderful old tale of politicians trying to tell you what to do and you tell them, well, stuff it. <clears throat> With that, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, a special request today. So over the next month, you will notice that you will not hear many ads. And that is because I'm a little lean on ad partners, unfortunately. And that's because of all the reasons that I've explained over the past few months. So as your wallets and your hearts allow, do me a favor. Become a paid subscriber at rightreport.substack.com or donate whatever you can via my Stripe account. You will find a link for both of those things in the show notes for today's episode, which you will see in whatever podcast platform you use. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our news this morning with a pivot towards international events. First up, Vice President Kamala Harris travels to Dubai this morning, meeting with global leaders to talk about and solve climate change. It's part of a United Nations conference called COP28 where presidents and prime ministers and protesters gather to demand action from nations who embrace fossil fuels, all, of course, to save the planet from catastrophic warming. Now, the conference will run for the next week, meaning that we are going to see a lot of news from Dubai about how to save this world, which means 
that you are going to need a heads up on what you are likely to hear from all those leaders and a fact check on what is true and what is just climate spin. So let's do that. Starting with the first of three things that you will almost certainly hear about today. And here it is. The world is far behind on its promises to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And the two biggest polluters, China and the U.S., they need to step up their game or we are just all dead like those birds under the windmills. All right. Well, here's why the argument goes. Well, indeed, Reuters News Service says that the total global emissions are up from last year by just about 1.3 percent. And that means that if if nothing changes, we are going to see global temperatures go up five degrees or higher as compared to the pre-industrialized era. But left out uh, from that Reuters report was this. Since the year 2007, the United States has been reducing its carbon dioxide emissions each and every year, and those are now down to levels last seen in 1988. But that is not true of China. Their emissions have been increasing all the way since 1968, and that makes them the world's largest emitter, more than every other industrialized country on the planet combined. Those emissions out of China, by the way, are set to increase until at least the year 2030. That's because China is permitting two coal-fired electricity plants per week of every week of the year. Finally, a little bit of honorable mention this morning, and it goes to India. And here's why. Their carbon dioxide emissions have not fallen since they started to industrialize themselves over 60 years ago. Plus, as Reuters News Service reported yesterday, New Delhi is exploring an additional 38 coal-fired plants over the next year. They anticipate that 28 of them will come online in the next 18 months. But that's a little bit curious, because India, of course, has very easy access to lots of alternatives like solar and wind technology, and yet they go in a different direction. Why is that? Well, according to the folks at Reuters News Service, that is because they want to avoid blackouts. Apparently, science has determined that the sun doesn't always shine nor the wind always blow. So India would like to have electricity all the time. Thus, they are investing in coal. India also said that they're waiting for industrialized batteries that are economically and technologically viable such that they can be a bridge for those cloudy or windless days. But until that happens and the batteries advance, coal it is. So that's the summary of the first message that you will hear today, that the world is far behind on its commitments. But now you have a quick fact check of exactly why that might be. Second, you are likely to hear that farming and ranching are horrific things. They are killing the planet. For instance, in the U.S., environmental groups point out that the ag industry accounts for about 10% of our emissions. Meanwhile, they say a category called food systems, those are responsible for 15 to 30% of all emissions globally. And those food systems are very bad. And that is why they say that we need to abandon traditional or factory farming and ranching. That is according to at least to one participant of COP28 called the World Animal Protection Organization, or WAP. Well, the folks at WAP are going to propose something tomorrow, and it is this, that the world do three things to fix this problem around ag. The first is to issue a 10-year global moratorium on any new large farms, although it is unclear exactly how that's defined. Second, this group is also demanding for more money 
and subsidies for plant-based foods. And hey, who doesn't love bugs and lettuce? Third, the folks at WAP say that factory farmers and ranchers must be mandated to pay into a global climate change damage fund. More on that fund in a second, but I want to emphasize something, folks. These individuals and organizations like WAP are very, very serious. As listeners will recall, the government of Ireland has already proposed to slaughter 200,000 cows in that country to meet their climate change goals. New Zealand, for its part, plans to tax its cows per burp or fart that they might have, forcing a national call of any moo-moos that are especially gassy. The point, folks, is that you are going to hear this call to reform agriculture globally over the next week, and they are going to be talking about things like bugs and slaughtering lots and lots of cows. The final thing that you are likely to hear today and throughout the next week is a lot about a climate change damage fund. And here's the idea. It's an international bucket of cash that will be available to countries that say that climate change has damaged their nations. Yet to be determined, though, are how much money should go into that bucket and who would contribute the funds. The general idea at present is that it's going to be you, taxpayers from developed countries that will be invited to donate to that bucket like a Salvation Army kettle at Christmas time. And climate activists are very serious about that. In fact, there is a movement to demand that the United States be forced to contribute to this fund, not just to donate because they say it's a form of global reparations. Yes, for the historical carbon dioxide emissions that the United States put into the atmosphere over the past 100 years. Now, so far, the Biden White House has resisted those efforts about forcing, but we shall see. For what it's worth, the total amount needed for this climate bucket, well, it is in the tens of trillions of dollars. At least that's according to diplomats and the World Bank, which is where the funds would be housed. In, in fact, the World Bank says that they will need at least $200 million to start up an account with them for some reason. But whatever and whenever that does happen, we can expect that a lot of nations will be very interested in getting their cut of this cash. For instance, a small group of island countries has already said that they are going to demand $100 billion. With that, we wrap up this morning with a final update from the war in the Middle East. Over the past three days, we have had three key updates to talk about, and let's start with the first, all about hostages. The Palestinian terror group Hamas released 16 people yesterday from countries all around the world, including Israel, Russia, and Thailand, the latter of whom were working in Israel's fields when Islamic radicals attacked and slaughtered at least some of them. In return for those hostages, Israel has agreed to release at least 30 Palestinian prisoners from Israeli correctional facilities. That includes one Palestinian woman earlier this week, who a number of years ago, 2015 actually, she tried but failed to become a suicide bomber. She was driving her car to a police checkpoint when a gas cylinder exploded a little bit too early. She was deeply and horrifically burnt, disfigured, she then sued uh, the Israeli state for plastic surgery to patch her up. Israel denied that request. For the record, her lawyers claimed that what happened was a suicide attempt, in other words, suicide by cop. Although she and her family have also claimed that it was just an accident, uh, that her car malfunctioned as she was carrying this, this gas can, uh, a lighter, uh, and shouting Allah Akbar as she ignited the gas can. So that is, that's quite an accident. 
The question this morning, though, is how much longer the ceasefire will last in Israel and how many more hostages might be released if so? Well, talks are underway this morning about all of those things, but as of this hour, it's very much touch and go about what comes next, with Israeli politicians increasingly demanding that the, the war cabinet relaunch military operations in Gaza to destroy Hamas. And yet, as I shared with you on Monday, most Israeli people want the opposite, actually, at least right now. They want a focus on the hostages more than they want to destroy Hamas. Well, as that debate inflames the Israeli people and their politics, part of the concern is that some or many of the remaining hostages might not even be alive. Hamas leaders have admitted to Arab nations like Qatar that they're not sure how many are alive and if so, where they even might be. That is because communications, they say, have been degraded inside the Gaza Strip. Plus, they say and admit that they actually turned over some of those Israeli hostages to other terror groups weeks ago. So who knows how many of those folks are dead or alive? And that is causing the Israeli government this morning to suspect that, well, many of the hostages are probably dead and that a ceasefire is really just an attempt by Hamas to delay and to rearm. More to come. Second, let's talk about humanitarian aid. The United States sent in 150,000 pounds of food to Egypt yesterday using three military transport planes. That aid will soon be transported into Gaza, probably by week's end. Regardless, that aid will join the additional aid from 800 semi-trucks that have delivered food, medicine, and water to the Gaza Strip over the past four days. And that includes fresh supplies for the heavily hit northern areas of the Gaza Strip, too. Well, as you would expect, all the trucks and all the supplies continue to be searched by Israeli forces. As listeners know, that is because Hamas has long used these humanitarian convoys as ways to smuggle in weapons and fighters. They have also smuggled in drugs. Yeah. For those folks who are unaware, Hamas gives drugs to their fighters right before they launch terror attacks, getting them high with a drug that is often referred to as a poor man's cocaine or jihadi juice. The actual name is Captagon. It was created in Germany back in the 1960s to help with ADD and depression. Regardless, more stuff, hopefully no jihadi juice, is getting to the Gaza Strip this morning, and that will come as a significant relief for the Palestinian people. For our third update for you this morning, some fresh analysis on why the White House tweeted this next message out yesterday, and this is important, folks. Listen closely. Quote, Hamas unleashed a terrorist attack because they fear nothing more than Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in peace. To continue down that path of terror, violence, killing, and war is to give Hamas what they seek. We cannot do that. End quote. Well, that message sent leftists in the United States into just an absolute tizzy of joy. A senior socialist and former spokesman of Bernie Sanders and AOC said on Twitter, quote, this is a major shift in tone. President Biden just used the word terror to describe Israel's actions in Gaza, end quote. The White House, though, said that there was no change in policy or tone. They still support the Israelis. But officials in Israel aren't so sure about that based on reporting and quotes from the Jewish insider. But it begs the question, why would the White House send out this message that could be reasonably viewed as new or changing? Well, we have some fresh analysis on that, and it comes to us from the folks at Axios News. 
So to explain, here are some numbers that you might not know, and they're from the 2020 election. First, Joe Biden claims that he won the state of Michigan by 154,000 votes, and that is in a state with 278,000 Arabs. Next, in Arizona, Biden claims that he won that state by 10,500 votes with an Arab population there of 60,000. Finally, in Georgia, Biden insists that he won that state by 11,800 votes with 57,000 people in that state, yes, being Arab. The point is that Biden cannot afford to lose even a thousand or two of those Arab voters and still reasonably expect to win the White House. And that is why the folks at Axios are claiming this morning that Biden and his team are now changing their rhetoric bit by bit to be increasingly more pro-Palestinian and, in the minds of some Arabs, more pro-Hamas. To underline the point, we have this next quote from a fellow named Osama Siblani. He's the publisher of the largest Arab-American newspaper in the country based out of Michigan. And he's telling his readership, do not vote for Biden or Kamala Harris. Quote, Biden lost our vote with this war on Gaza, and you are going to see Michigan and Georgia change because of it. End quote. So those are the latest facts and data out of the Middle East this morning. Just one quick piece of analysis and opinion. There are over 100 hostages being held this morning or have already died because Hamas refuses to release them or their bodies. That, I think, is important to remember. Hamas is not the good guy here, no matter who tells you it's something different. Second, this Biden pivot of being more pro-Palestinian or offering a dog whistle to the pro-Hamas faction of his party, well, he is clearly trying to pull off a presidential squeaker. Right? He knows that he is losing, polls show that repeatedly, and he desperately needs to win over these, well, terrorist sympathizers. Is that grotesque? Yes. Is it just politics as usual? Well, I'm tempted to say yes. Politicians do all sorts of gross things to win, regardless of Republican or Democrat. But then again, playing footsie with a terrorist ideology like we are also, by the way, seeing at the CIA and the Pentagon this morning, as we discussed yesterday. Well, actually, that's not normal. And that's important to remember, I think. It's just not normal at all. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But if I got one more thing before I let you go, we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It is a personal reflection today. Inspired by this next headline, quote, thumbs up for builders in one of poorest Dutch districts, end quote. So what that headline and the resulting article are referring to is what we spoke of on Tuesday. The conservative Dutch politician, a guy named Gert Wilders, shocked his nation and all of Europe with his electoral victory. Now, to refresh our memories, it was a shocker because he has very conservative views on things like immigration. He wants none of it, in short. And he wants his nation to focus on his working class. He doesn't want to provide more financial support to all those migrants and asylum seekers from places like Northern Africa and the Middle East. As he argues, they don't speak his language. They don't care for the history or culture of the Dutch people. And most are actually responsible for a disproportionate percentage of crime in his nation, especially the young migrant men, many of whom are radicalized Muslims. And saying those things, irrespective of the fact that they're true, was unacceptable, certainly in the Netherlands and in Europe writ large. 
Those statements and the related policies were branded as extreme right or Trumpian in nature. But that did not matter, did it, to the people of the Netherlands? Most of them chose him and his party anyway. Well, the French media outlet AFP decided to interview some of his supporters over the past few days, and reporters found something very important. Mr. Wilders had substantial support amongst the Dutch working class. Specifically, journalists discovered that it was the poorest of the people in the Netherlands who gave him their vote. As AFP showed, their average salaries were around $27,000 a year, and they were struggling to make ends meet. To that point, one woman that they interviewed would not allow her last name to be used because she was ashamed. They were interviewing her at a food bank. Meanwhile, they interviewed other people on streets that were empty with both consumers and stores gone, with row after row of deserted restaurants and retail shops and bars, all of it gone. And in each interview, the poorest of these Dutch people spoke of how they wanted things to be as they once were with good paying jobs, affordable housing, and the chance to raise their kids in peace and in good schools. But their government wasn't listening to them, only listening to the needs of the migrants. So they voted for Mr. Velders to change that, no matter how drastic or socially unacceptable he or his views might be to the Netherlands and their elite or Europe's elites. Now, I think that that sounds remarkably familiar. The working man and the working woman, so down on their luck and so frustrated with a government that doesn't listen to them, that they just don't care anymore about who the messenger is. They just want to send a message to the capital. And that is this, blow the place up because there is little to nothing left anymore. People are despondent and they are giving up. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the message that we heard in America sent to our elites by voters back in 2016 when they supported Donald Trump. And based on polling, that is the message that people are sending once again to our elites in D.C. in the year 2024. And if we needed any confirmation of this, that America is hurting, that the common man and the woman are sick and tired of a government that are not listening to them to the point that they are starting to give up. Well, here it is. Yesterday, we got confirmation that suicide rates in the United States reached an all time high last year and this year. They are set to hit a record, 50,000 in all. Combine that number with overdose deaths, and that means that we will be at over 150,000 people dead from deaths of despair in this country each year. And let's just be very clear. There is no amount of spin from either party or politician or media outlet that can hide what that means. In short, ladies and gentlemen, America is broken. We are angry, we are despondent, and we demand change. We want our country back. We want the imperfect America of our youth, where people saluted the flag, not burned it down like it's kindling for a campfire. We we want a country where we honor our founders and our ancestors, not smearing them as the patriarchy or tearing down their statues in spasms of violent rage. And speaking of, we want law and order in our streets and in our stores. We want to lock up the criminals, not lock up the goods behind some cheap plastic barriers. And we want a border that actually exists with a government that actually vets people as they want to come in, all to decide if they share our values rather than wanting to share our national piggy bank. But more than anything, more than anything, 
We want our pride back. We want a chance to raise our kids without looking at them in pain, unable to give them the same basic standard of living that we had. We don't want to shuffle our credit card debt from one to the other, putting record amounts of our purchases on those silly buy now, pay later programs as we talked about yesterday. But we're doing that because we feel like we have no choice or maybe horrifically, maybe we're buying now because we know we won't be here later. That might be the logic of the 150,000 of us who won't be here later, not in one year's time. And that's why my message to all of us this morning is this. None of modern America is normal. This country as we have it today, it's not normal and it's not acceptable. And it's not normal nor acceptable in the Netherlands either. So if you are thinking about giving up this morning by suicide or throwing away your ballot because you think your vote doesn't matter anymore, well, let me remind all of us, if you do either of those things, they will win. And to be clear, they are very much hoping that they do win. So my friends, my plea to all of us this morning is simple. Do not give up. There is still power in your vote and there is still power in your living. And we are going to need both of those in spades over the next year. Because the powers of darkness and evil are gathering. I believe that. But here's the good news. So too shall we gather. And we will be victorious. I know that. And that's because as I shared with you on Thanksgiving of last week, I've got generations of ancestors who are looking down at me and demanding that we be victorious. And you do too. Men and women of great courage and conviction and sacrifice in your family look down on you every single day, silently reminding you that they gave all to help build the America that we all remember from our youth as good and righteous. So let us remember that. And let us fight at the ballot box and for our lives, because those are the stakes, ladies and gentlemen, and we must win. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. Thanks again for your consideration of being a paid subscriber this morning or a donor through Stripe. It it means a lot. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.